All right, uh, I want us to, we, a couple weeks ago, I talked with you about this idea of the courage to face your giant. And uh, I want you to take out, you should have gotten a handout today. If you didn't get one, just lift your hand up. I'm sure there'll be people that will help you with those. Okay, a couple of people are going to jump around to help, okay, pass those out. And uh, we talked about the courage to face your giant. You remember uh, we, we talked about that a giant stands between you and the purpose of God. And we gave giants names. Do you remember some of the names we gave, gave to giants? What's the name of a giant? Somebody give me a Lack is the name of a giant. Sickness is the name of a giant. Addictions is the name of a giant. Material, or excuse me, marital conflict is the name of a giant. These are all, we, we said we, we'll give them names when we, when we go after them. And, and in that message, I shared with you three keys to fighting giants. Uh, I, number one in your notes, it says you have to believe the promise belongs to you by divine right. Uh, Caleb says we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. The giant stands before you and says, this ground is my ground. But you have to believe that what God has said to you is true, and that no, that ground is your ground, and you have to take it from the giant. Nobody's given up anything. Nobody's giving you anything. You have, he says everywhere you place the soles of your foot, that becomes yours, but it doesn't just come to you. You have to take it from that giant. You have to say, no, you think you have a claim, but I have the claim that God has given to me that that land belongs to me, and uh, take, that, take that land. And then the second thing we talked about was you have to believe that God will empower you to get it. And remember, David says to Goliath, the battle is the Lord's and he will give uh, you into our hands. And you have to believe that, that God is, that, that, that he can empower you. That is, that as you're facing this challenge, God can enable you to go up there and do what needs to get done. You may be weak in a lot of different ways. You know, the circumstances will tell you it can't be done. Your friends will tell you it can't be done. Your history of past failures, you'll be able to look back and go, I blew it here, I blew it there. Why should I expect that something is going to happen today for me, that, that I'm going to be able to take down this giant? But the scripture tells us, no, you've got to take your stand. You've got to believe that God, if God tells you to do it, that he will empower you to do it. And then the last thing I talked about was you have to take a step of faith to kill a giant. It means you have to do something. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. Uh, and so you have to do something. What does that mean, you have to do something? I don't know what it means. It, it's going to be different for every situation that you're in. In some situations, you're going to need to give an offering. In some situations, you're going to need to uh, pray publicly. You're going to need to lay hands on somebody in a public circumstance and take a stand that God's going to touch them. In some situations, you may need to confess something, to be able to, to say out loud, I believe this is where we're going. I think this is what's going to happen. In some situations, you're going to need to go to those in authority and ask permission. I've got to do, I've got to ask you if I can do this because I've sensed the Lord telling me to go after this in this kind of way. It's going to be different things, but there has to be some kind of action that gets taken. But having worked with people for a long time, I realized that that is usually the place where things break down. That is, it's easy for us to talk about things, but when it comes time to actually taking action, to step out in some kind of way, to do something in some kind of way, a lot of times that's where we shrink back and we break down. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the courage 
to face your giant? Where do you get the courage? I, I, you know, I've told you what you need to do to challenge your giant, what you need to do in that battle, but where do you get the courage? You, you, you know, there's so many things pushing again. Where do you get the courage to say, okay, I'm going to step up in this situation? Where does that come from, right? And in your notes it says this, the basis of giant killing is not what we do, but what we believe about our relationship with God, okay? So even though I'm telling you you've got to do something, yes, you've got to do something. When you are doing something, you're you're actually translating into action something that you deeply believe. If you don't have the belief, you'll never be able to do the action. There's got to be something inside of you that you deeply believe. To believe that God is giving you promises, that he's fighting for you, is based on how you understand your relationship to God. If you see yourself as a disappointment to God, you will not fight. Some of you that are sitting here right now, you see, that's the way you see yourself. You see yourself basically as a disappointment. You, you don't even understand exactly why you're here. You, uh, you look at the situation and you say, you know, I, I mess up in so many different ways. Uh, some of them are visible to other people. Some of them aren't, but I know. And you see this, this thing, and you feel like, I'm a disappointment to God. I mean, when God looks out at his children, you know, he looks at me like, eh, yeah, we tried our best. You know, it didn't quite come together. And I feel like a disappointment. If you see yourself as someone who is too weak to please God, you'll not fight. You're not going to get into a situation where you're fighting for something, You're not going to attack your giant. You're not going to take action if you feel like, I'm weak. I I fail. I try. I try. I try. And I fail. And I fail. And I fail. And I'm a weak person. And if you see yourself as unable to meet God's demands, you will not fight. That is, if you look at yourself and you say, you know what? God has these things, you know, that he wants me to do, and I cannot do them. He wants me to be a certain way, and I cannot be that way. I try, and I try, and I try. I'm too weak to fulfill what he is demanding of me. He's asking something of me that I cannot do. And if these things are in place, if these beliefs are in place in your mind, you will never kill a giant because you'll never have the courage to stand up to that giant. Uh, you don't honestly believe that God is on your side and, and you're, you're too weak to live up to, to what he wants for you. But God wants you to break through this kind of thinking. And I'm going to try to share with you just a couple thoughts today that have helped me to get beyond all of my stupidity and all of my weaknesses and all of my insecurities and all of my fears and all of my failures, to get beyond that and to actually Go after something and to believe that God is with me, even when a lot of times the situations are very difficult. Um, Remember the story of the talents? Remember where the master comes and he he pulls out one servant and he gives him five talents. And and then he pulls out another servant and he says, I'm going to give you two talents. I want you to take this and do, you know, try and do something with me for it. And then he pulls out another servant, and he gives him one talent. Remember the story? And, um, 
And, and the guy who gets five talents, he goes out, he trades, he works, he does the best he can, and he actually reproduces five more talents. So when the master returns, he gives, his, he, he gives him the five talents he was originally given plus five more talents. The guy who, who is given two talents, he has much less than the five-talent guy, but he takes what God has given him, what the master has given him, and he does his very best with those two talents, and he comes back and he's reproduced two more talents. And then we have the third guy. Remember the third guy, what he says to the master. He says, and the one who had received the one talent came up and said, listen to what he says, master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground and see you have what is yours. He, he, says, he, says, I, he says, Master, I know what kind of person you are. You're a hard person. You're an unfair person. You're taking from others what belongs to them. And you're a person who creates fear in people. He says, I know what you, and so I took your one. You know, often when we tell that story, we focus on one guy gets five and one guy gets two. And we think, you know, maybe that's the point of the story, you know, that, that, that we're different. You know, that there are five talent people and there are two talent people. And then, you know, there are the rest of us, the one talent people, you know, that we're different in that way. But when you really take time to meditate and think about the story, you realize that it's really not about the talents because he's just as happy with the two-talent person as he is with the five-talent person because the two-talent person and the five-talent person both took what he gave them and believed and, and believed in their relationship with him and believed in their connection. They went out there and they said, I want to do the best for my master. I'm going to give it, my, give it the best shot. What the story is really about is the one-talent guy not that he only got one talent. What it's really about is that the one talent guy, in his heart of hearts, when he thought about the master, he saw the master as hard and unfair and taking from others and, and this kind of thing. You see, it was what in my heart, it was what was inside of me that had this dramatic negative impact on the one-talent guy. It wasn't that he had one talent. He could have gone out. He would have got the same uh, approval taking his one talent and doing something with it as the other ones did. The amount of talent didn't make any difference at all. What made this difference was this inner heart attitude. This is why, you know, this is what, this is what God is at work at inside of you. What he's after inside of you is not your talents. It's not sharpening your abilities. We're going to have some students that are A students here and some students that are C students and some students that are barely dragging through. And, and you know, all of that is, that, that, that's good. We need to be doing the best with what, we, with what we have. But that's not what the focus is on. What the focus is on is what is the attitude inside of yourself. Are you giving yourself? Are you applying yourself? Are you, you know, I, I really, to be honest with you, I've never known a student at Elam who had the attitude of the five talent and the two talent person that, that, um, 
that ever didn't succeed. They, everybody makes it through. I mean, we all make it through at different levels. You know, I didn't make it through at some award-winning level myself. I ended up being the president of the place. So, so, so you know, we all have different. We all have different abilities and talents and stuff like that. But the, but the. But the real, this issue of what do you really think about God and what do you really think God thinks about you? What do you think he thinks about you? And what you believe in that area is what makes the difference of whether or not you have the courage to go after your giants and to fight your giants. Look here in this uh, passage, a very famous passage we're all familiar with from Isaiah chapter 6 in your note, notes. It says this, it says, with a vision of God must come a vision of his love. This is so important. Every single person has to have this. And I'm going to try to show it to you here and see if you can, you can catch this picture. Uh, Isaiah 6 starts out with this, it's probably for me maybe one of the most graphic images that I have in my mind when I think about the greatness and the glory of God. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robes filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So we have this fantastic awesomeness of God. Some people think that's what, that's what it's all about. As you know, I just need to see the awesomeness of God. But I want to tell you something right now. You see the awesomeness of God, and you don't go any farther, and you will shrivel up, and you, will, you would say, how could you say... I can't believe this, Pastor Mike. Saying, if I see the awesome, if I see the vision that Isaiah had, that that I'll just I'll just shrivel up. I'm standing before you right now, and I'm telling you this: if you see the awesomeness of God, but you do not see the mercy of God, you will not be able to be a, a, a giant killer. Because God is awesome. That's true. But you got to get the whole picture. So what happens to this guy? This guy sees the awesomeness of God. And what do you see happens? He says this. As a matter of fact, this is many of you, your experience of your first semester at Elam. This is the, this is the first semester at Elam. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. That was my first semester at Elam. I came to Elam. I mean, I thought, you know, I was in my home church. I was kind of a little hero. I'd gotten saved when I was 17, but I really came on strong and, you know, really cool. I came here to Elam and got exposed to the word of God. And when that semester ended, I just could hardly hold my head up. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I was like, woe is me. Let me tell you right now, woe is me people do not kick down gates. Woe is me people don't take down giants, right? But that's where I was. I, I, fin I saw God's glory in a way I had never seen it before. I was exposed to the mirror of the word of God in a way that I had never seen it before. And when I left, 
I, I did not leave a conquering hero. I left, oh God, help me, what a mess. I can't believe they're going to let me back in. When I came, well, that's a whole story all by itself. You know, I got, I got let into Elam on probation, basically, because they thought I was so messed up. So any of you that are on probation, I didn't even get here and get put on probation. They said when they saw me at the door, you're on probation. Right there, right there, coming in, right? <laughs> so, but when that semester ended, I was like devastated, see? And this is exactly what happens. When you see the glory of God, that actually isn't what prepares you to be a giant killer. You see the glory of God, and all you'll become aware of and conscious of is your own failure, your own inadequacy, your own inability. That's a step in the process. That needs to happen. If that doesn't happen, you'll always be trusting in your own flesh and your own strength. So you need to see the glory of God, and you need to realize, woe is me, right? But then we see something happen because God realizes this. If I let this person leave here, and all they have is my glory, they're going to be worthless to me on planet Earth. They're going to be walking around going, God is great, and I'm, I'm crut, and, and you know, they're not going to feel any boldness. They're not going to feel any empowerment. They're not going to feel any courage to take on a challenge. They're going to see the glory of God, and they're going to see their weakness and their inability. And God realizes this, and so he does something to redeem the situation. Verse 6, it says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. If you don't, you have got to have an experience of the mercy and the forgiveness of God. You gotta realize, yes, God is holy. And you gotta realize, yes, I am a mess. But you have got to, re if you're gonna take on any giants on planet Earth, if you're gonna do anything, if you're gonna make any kind of an impact, Something has to happen where you come to, to realize God is holy and I am a mess, but the holiness of God has come and touched me and cleansed me from the inside, and now I'm forgiven. And in that forgiven state, when God looks at me, he sees me not as some sinner to the side, but he sees me as his son. He sees me as his daughter. He sees me as holy as Jesus. And with that comes an energy, comes a, a capacity, comes an ability to, to, um, to be courageous. As a matter of fact, you see right in the story, it says, verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord. He couldn't hear the voice of the Lord before that. All he could hear was how cruddy he was. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. You don't say, here am I, send me, when all you see is the glory of God. When you see the glory of God, you say, woe is me. But it's not until you see the mercy of God, the grace of God, God's empowerment that comes within you, the coal from the altar, that then you can hear the voice of the Lord saying, who will I send? Who will go for me? Here am I. Send me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. 
right? So, the, so, so there's, there's a powerful picture here that we need to get a hold of. And you need to get a hold of it here as you're getting ready to go home for the Christmas break and, and this kind of thing. Man, it, some of you, you've seen the holiness of God, but it's not over with. God wants to give you so much more. He wants to show you so much more. He wants to show you the coal that's come from the altar, that's cleansed you and purified you and make you the person that he wants to use. Look, look, look here in your notes. Just go on. It says, with a call to ministry. This is important now because many of you are called to ministry. With the call to ministry must come an experience of mercy. That's what happened in the Isaiah story, right? In the Isaiah story, he, gets a, he, he, he doesn't hear the call to ministry until he has an experience of mercy, right? And he, he, look what he says here in 2 Corinthians 4.1. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, okay, so we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. See, we have this ministry. You get, there's a ministry, call to ministry. You are, many of you are called to ministry in this room. As we have this ministry, he says, we receive mercy. Got to receive the mercy. Otherwise, we're going to lose heart. So I'm telling you two things right now. First of all, if you get a vision of God without the revelation of the grace of God, his empowering, his touch upon you, you're not going to be able to kill giants. Here's a second one for you. If you get a ministry, you get a call to ministry, and you don't get a revelation of mercy, you will lose heart. You will lose heart. I've seen many people lose heart because you can't do it in yourself. You can only do it with that revelation that God is with you. Uh, in your notes, he says this, we often see our weaknesses as causing God to despise us. We see him as wanting to distance himself from us. This is the natural man, right? If you see yourself as weak, you're wanting to hide it. You're wanting to get away from God. You don't want to tell, you know, sometimes I walk across campus and I don't even have to say anything to somebody. I walk across campus, they look at me and I knew, I know immediately, as soon as they look at me, I can tell they want to run in the other direction. They just look at me and it's like, it's like, oh God, you know, I, this, this is the last thing I need today is to have to actually interact with him in some kind of way, you know, actually have a conversation or something. Because they're so aware of their failure, they're so aware of their inability, they're so aware. And so our natural tendency when we feel inadequate is to want to isolate ourselves, to want to separate ourselves, to want to pull away. You know, when you feel inadequate, you're not running after giants. You're not running into the face of a battle. You, you, you're shrinking back. But look what he says here in 1 Corinthians 126. It's so important for us to get this deep into our spirit. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. See, what he's saying to this is he says, if you came and took a standardized test, you would have scored foolish weak, base, and despised on the standardized test, okay? So, that, you know, those of you who didn't do good on your Bible content test, you know, know where we're going here. Okay, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
But God has chosen. He has deliberately, come on, think about it. God has deliberately made the decision to put his hand on the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Some of you have a list of all the reasons why God should not use you. I'm here to tell you today, the longer your list, the more God wants to use you. The longer your list of reasons why you don't quite shape up, you don't quite have enough, you don't quite, you're not quite good enough, you, don't, you haven't quite put it together yet, you haven't quite, the longer that list is, the more God looks at you and says, she is exactly the one I want to use. He is exactly the one I want to use. Why? Because when God uses you, everybody will know it's him. Right? Because they're all looking at you going, oh, yeah, no, they don't have it. No, they, you know, they, they, you know, no, we gave them the standardized test. They came out foolish, base, despised, lowly, not the, they don't have the right stuff. Right? And God says, now I choose you. I'm going to put my power in you. I'm going to put my love in you. I'm going to put myself in you. When I choose you, now everybody is going to have to, have to acknowledge that's the Lord who has done this great thing. It's the Lord who has moved in this way. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this, no, go, go to the top. He says, God knows where we come from, and he is not ashamed. He is glorified. God knows. Or do you not know the unrighteous, this is a great passage, listen. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulter, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to what it says in verse 11, though, it's so powerful. Such were some of you. My sister, you know, uh, she's like maybe 14 years older than me. So she, she's like in her late 70s. And just a year or so ago, she gave her life to Christ. All, all my life, long, long I've been preaching to her, and she never really came around. But a year or so ago, she gave her life to Christ. So she started going to church. And, uh, and she says to me, she says, she says, I don't get these people, she said at the church. She says, there are, there are so many messed up people there. She said, they can't get a hold of anything. I don't, you, know, you know, I thought church would go there would be people, you know, be holy people, you know, people that are, are going somewhere and kind of stuff. And I said to her, I said, what? I, said, I said, Lucille, I said, think about it for a minute. I said, church is for people who need to get saved, right? I said, so church is going to be filled up with people who needed to get saved, Right? If you need to get saved, how many of you know if everything's going right and everything's good and everything, you don't need to get saved? You with me? You got to be messed up to get saved, right? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, otherwise they would say, they would say uh, well, have you been helped in the Lord? They don't say, have you been helped in the Lord? They say, have you been saved, right? 
Why? Because this is, if we were to take all of our applications and I were to have x-ray vision into your life, we, I could write over the top of every single application, do not be deceived, de deceived, neither fornicators, so I could go through the application, fornicator, 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 neither fornicator, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Homosexuals, like it's some big deal. It's just another part of the mess. Nor thieves. I could right here, right now, I could just I could go through thief, 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 right across that one. Right? Nor swindlers. Swindlers. You see the way this person, you know, plagiarizes? Swindler, you know, swindler. Look around, he's giving it, look around the room. This is it right here. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's this group right in this room here right now. But you got saved. Are you with me? You got saved. You didn't just get helped. You know, I, I, I got encouraged by the Lord. You, know. you didn't just get encouraged. You got saved, right? And you know what? You needed to get saved. Something needed to happen in your life, right? And he, and, and he tells us, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. These are the people who God has decided to use we have this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Have you ever thought about the commentators on the Bible, how they have a tendency to identify people by their weaknesses? Have you ever thought about that? This is, see, it's, a, it's, the human, it's the human thing. We focus on... The weakness, not focusing on what God has done. You know, for you have, for example, you have Simon the leper. Why isn't he called Simon the healed? Right? Or you have blind Bartimaeus. Why don't they call him Bartimaeus the seeing? Or you have the woman with the issue of blood. Why don't they call her the woman of faith? Or you have the prodigal son. Why don't they call him the accepted son? Or you have Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Why don't they call him Mr. Restitution? Went around and made up everything for everybody. The garrison demoniac. Why don't they call him Mr. Delivered? The thief on the cross. Why don't they call him Paradise Man? He was with Jesus in paradise. Right? But when the commentators are writing about it, they don't focus on... What God, the redemptive thing that God has done, their tendency is to focus on the weakness. If I was to look at this group right now, what might I call them, right? Mike the lustful, Susie the complaining, Bill the gossip, Frank the worried, Norman no devotions. <laughs> you know, 
couldn't I say instead, Mike the cleansed, or Susie the encouraging, or Bill the truth teller, or Frank the caring, or Norman the holy? Because that's what they become after God works in them and, and does something inside of them. Are you with, are you with me? we got to get a hold of this picture. Okay, I want, I'm going to just skip ahead and just go. I want to read this one passage to you to end off. Romans 8, 31 through 39. I'm reading it from the Message Bible. And uh, I, it's just... It's just really powerful. Look look what he says here, starting with verse 31. He says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God doesn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. He knew all your weaknesses. He knew all your failures. He knew all your inabilities. He knew knew all that. And right now, he is before the throne of God forever, the Bible tells us, making intercession for us in the book of Hebrews. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying, not threats, not backstabbing, not Christmas vacation, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. God is on your side. There is nothing you cannot do. If God be for you, who can be against you? There is nothing that you cannot do. There's no barrier that's in front of you that you can't overcome. There's no giant mocking you that you cannot take down. God is with you. And he knows every single weakness and sin and frailty in your life. He knows it all. And he says that I have chosen them. Their depression doesn't scare me. I have chosen them. Their anxiety doesn't scare me. I have chosen them. And I'm going to use them to make an impact in the world. Let's just bow our heads. Can we do that right now? I'm going to ask Brother Stacy just to come on up, Brother Stacy. And just as you do that, I'm just going to just pray with us right now. Lord, I thank you for, for every person here right now. I pray they did have a vision of the greatness and the glory of God this semester. I pray that they're seeing the Lord in a way that they've never seen the Lord before. 
But Lord, I also pray, because I know that they'll never be giant killers unless they experience the touch of the coal from the altar that you sent, you sent to touch them and to burn all the iniquity out of their lives and to make them clean, pure, and absolutely who you want them to be. I thank you for it today, this amazing redemption, and that you have a purpose for them. I come against every snare of the enemy that's being set for them during this Christmas break. Every enemy that's going to hold itself up and say, no, that ground doesn't belong to you. That ground belongs to me. Lord, I just stand against it right now in the name of Jesus, and I ask you to fill each one of them with the courage to face their giant, the courage to face their temptation, the courage not to be drawn into things and to know you are with them, Lord, to be bold and to be strong, to be comforting, to be an an enabler, to be a a source of strength all throughout these holidays. I thank you for for that, Lord, that you're going to flow through them in that way. In Jesus' name.